Hello, and you're very welcome to this special Leap of Faith edition for St. Patrick's Night. Well, wherever Irish people at home or abroad gather, there'll be a moment when we acknowledge our Irishness. Whether it's the tradition that the Chicago River is dyed green on the Saturday before St. Patrick's Day, or watching parades in local towns and villages closer to home. The holiday has evolved into a celebration of Irish culture with parades, special foods, music, dancing, drinking and a whole lot of green. We relish our reputation for our sense of humour, eloquence, love of music and hospitality. Our celebration of the life of a Briton who found himself enslaved in Ireland reminds us that we just don't look to life on this island alone to mark our Irishness. As the war continues in Europe and we prepare to welcome thousands of refugees from Ukraine, where efforts are being made to wipe out their very existence and identity, we thought we might explore with words and music tonight what it means to be Irish now. In the studio tonight, my guests include John O'Donnell, poet and barrister. From his home in Donnycarney this evening, Father Vassil Kornitsky, a Ukrainian priest and chaplain to the Ukrainian community in Ireland. Also with us is Dr. Eben Joseph, lecturer, author and consultant. She's the founder and module coordinator for the first Black Studies module in Ireland at University College Dublin. And in our Cork studio this evening, Dr. Damien Bracken, historian and lecturer in the School of History, UCC. He also spent periods teaching in the Department of History in Boston University and in the Department of History in Boston College. Father Vassal, can I go to you first? And before we get into the business in hand tonight, can I just ask a straightforward question? How are you? Uh, I am, I'm OK. I'm much better today than I was two weeks ago because when, when the war started in Ukraine, I couldn't even function for three days. I couldn't sleep. I was worried about my family. But uh, I guess I'm, I'm, I have to accept that there is war in Ukraine and I have to also... Uh, think of myself, of my well-being, emotional and physical well-being. So and when I'm, you, I'm much better today than I was. Well, that, yeah. is, that is good to hear. And I, I'm guessing you have family there? Yeah, my, my entire family still lives in Ukraine. And, yeah. you, you, and my, my family lives in the, in the western part of Ukraine. The other aspect, of course, is that <coughs> you are anticipating the arrival of maybe over 100,000 refugees coming to this country from your country. Um, that's going to put a huge demand on, on your services as chaplain to that community. It will, it will. I, I already can see that because last Sunday when I was celebrating our Ukrainian Mass here in Donikarni, our Mass attendance already doubled. So we are expecting more and more uh, refugees and those who are going to come here to stay with their family members. Uh, so it's, uh, but it's very important for me as a priest, and I, I saw that last Sunday, is to be very close to the people, to feel their pain and their sorrow and their anxiety. People, a lot of people are crying. They need emotional, psychological, and, and, and especially spiritual support from me. And of course, the support that you're getting from <coughs> your parishioners in Donnycarney as well. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I have to say that since I came to Ireland, to this beautiful land of St. Patrick, uh, I've been surrounded with love, uh, compassion uh, from my from my Donnycarney folks, and I uh, realized how how much they love me uh, during this time of, tro- of 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 war in Ukraine, because the support I've been getting from from my Donnycarney parishioners uh, has been uh, just oh, uh, exceptional, overwhelming, and beyond my belief. Do you have a sense of of being a little bit Irish at this stage? Well, I am. I am. I am a very proud Irish citizen, 
and I'm a, a son of my, my land, my, my, my Ukraine. And I have, of course, I have my family in Ukraine, but this is my second home, which I love. Uh, I love Ireland, and I'm very happy to be an Irish citizen. What do your family in Ukraine think of, of your Irishness? Of my Irishness? Well, they, they like it. When I got my Irish passport, my family was, was, over, was very happy for me. And my parents were very happy for me. And w- when I was getting my Irish citizenship, that was a very emotional uh, day for me personally. So my family is very happy that I'm happy. <laughs> Dr. Eben Joseph, you're also with us this evening. Um, I'm curious about your definition of your Irishness. And how do I define it? Um, I love I love drinking tea. <laughs> 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 I think that's my first Irishness. I love drinking tea. You know, I love St. Patrick's Day. You know, I, I've loved St. Patrick's Day for the past 20 years that I've lived in Ireland. So that's, I, I think for me that, you know, um, and I use the royal we, Mm. You know, I think, you know, sometimes when I'm talking, I say, you know, we've not done so well in Ireland and I'm adding myself there. You know, so I think for me that for me, that's my I'm like, OK, I really am Irish, you know, like when I'm talking and I'm, I'm you know, I'm, and I'm trying to blame Ireland for something. And I actually add myself as the we who haven't done this. So that means I have a sense of responsibility about the things that need to be done in Ireland. So I think for me, that makes me feel, okay, yeah, I am. Because I don't talk about the UK like that. I don't talk about the US like that. Do you know? So if I talk about Ireland like that, so for me, it is home. So yeah, it's, it's nice. And if you think about that, that period of time of, of, of your integration here into Ireland, was it always welcoming? No, <laughs> you know, again, I'm not because, you know, St. Patrick's Day is a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. I love St. Patrick's Day for two things. One is our day of belonging. I think I think I don't know, but I think it's the happiest day in Ireland. I don't know. People might have, you know, they might think maybe it's a day where they, win, they win sports or something. But for me, I think St. Patrick's Day is the happiest day in Ireland. There's just this, you know, camaraderie, there's openness, everybody's happy walking on the street. That's the memory I have of St. Patrick's Day, you know. Maybe because, you know, like 10 years ago, my kids were like 10, you know, they were much younger. And I used to, you know, we have to get on the bus and then drop off somewhere and then you have to do a long walk to get to the city centre to see the parade, you know, and all of that. So that whole, that, so that's the image I still have of St. Patrick's mm. Day. But it's not always been welcoming, but I guess, yeah, yeah. Well, selectively welcoming, I think that's, that's, what, that's what it is. And, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, but I'm also curious of the same question that I asked of Vassal, which is that when you meet with family or relatives from Nigeria, uh, do they notice a difference in you? Massively. Oh, like, for example, I say grand. <laughs> my, sister, my sister starts laughing, like, oh, grand. <laughs> she, like, it just, she, she it cracks up all the time when I say grand, you know? You know, I, or when I say, you're all right, you know? You know, I say, oh, you're all right. <laughs> you're so those things, yeah, grand, you're all right, you know, they crack her up, like, you know, she just, <laughs> so, yeah. And is there, is there a quality? I mean, I, one of the things that occurred to me when we were thinking about the programme and the chat about it was how easy it is to look at the stereotypes of, for example, to be Irish. And of course, very often, I suppose, the stereotypes are the things that uh, we don't like about ourselves or are used to put us down. But there are positive things as well. Uh, have you any observations <coughs> of the Irish people you know that you'd see in a positive light? The positives of the Irish mm. people. And I think there's, you know, they're always willing to talk. Like, you know, <laughs> like, Stop you know, talking is the trick. No, but it's fantastic. Like, you know, yeah. they are actually always willing to talk. Like you can actually just start having a conversation with somebody you don't know. And I think that's really beautiful, you know, because a lot of people don't talk. So I think that's a, a good trait, you know, of the Irish. So that's for me, it's one positive. Dr. Damien Bracken is in our Cork studios. Damien, welcome along to the programme. Thank you very uh, much. Can, can we put all this on the shoulders of Jan St. Patrick? 
Um, in a way, we can. Uh, if you're looking the first for the first Irish person, uh, historical Irish person, then Patrick has a, has a strong call uh, uh, claim on that. Um, he's the first person to write about himself as Irish, uh, write about an Irish identity. Um, even though, and, and in a way, there's a lot went into that mix for St. Patrick. He, he's British. Um, he's, he's a British Celt. Um, he's from a part of the world which was part of the Roman Empire, so he's also Roman, but he also sees himself as, um, um, as, as, as Irish. Um, so he, he's, he's quite a mix. I'm curious too about the idea that uh, you know the the St Patrick I suppose that we might have picked up either heaven forbid from Hollywood or from from the cartoon world. Uh, he was a bit of a rough diamond, was he? Well, he had a very rough life. He, um, he, he had a t- he had a tough time that, and he tells us about it himself. Um, you know, any time any time I think I'm facing challenges, I think of St Patrick, and uh, he did not have it easy, but he came through. Um, but once you once you Go beyond the green beer and the shamrocks uh, uh, and the parades. Um, you can try to recover the historical Patrick, and he is a compelling figure. And Sam Columbanus is another figure, I think, that you would have spent a time looking at. He would have made an early effort to try and define Irishness as well. Yes, um, Patrick is the first person to call himself Irish, but um, Columbanus is the first person really to explore what Irish identity meant. Um, uh, and, you know, in, in a sense, Columbanus grows out of that sort of Irish spirituality that St. Patrick established. You know, it's, it's, it's outward looking. It's, uh, it's about sharing your faith and spreading your faith with others. That's what Patrick does. And then Columbanus brings it in the um, opposite direction. He brings it uh, from Ireland uh, to the continent and he unleashes a wave um, of Irish scholars and Irish missionaries who work their way across Europe. Um, even even getting the furthest point they got, um, and Father Vassar will be interested to hear this, uh, Irish missionaries mm-hmm. made it even to Kiev. Ah, that's wow. A, that, that's an interesting one. Did, did you know that one, Father? No, I, I, had, no, I had no idea. No, yes. I never heard that. But that, that, that's interesting, yeah? Yes, Irish monks who accompanied uh, German traders um, set up shop mm. in, 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 I think it was the 12th century, in, in Kiev. And Father Vassal, have you a take on, on St. Patrick, I suppose, with your, your clerical hat on for a moment? My hair. <laughs> well, uh, f- first of all, St. Patrick for me, for me is a very humble man. And he starts his confessions with the words, I am the sinner. So, and he was not only a very humble man, but he was a man of strong faith. Uh, but he also had total trust in God. So the, the life of St. Patrick... Uh, always reminds me never to give up you know he was he was he reminds me of a commitment that we should have in our life uh, always to be determined to be always strong in faith and to always lean on god in your times of difficulties and troubles so that's that's who saint patrick uh, for me is humility faith a commitment and determination uh, and damien another word i suppose that people would recognize these days is the word resilience i mean we're seeing it in the people of ukraine um St. Patrick, a resilient individual too? Uh, yes, he had to be. He, he was a survivor, if, if nothing else. Um, he, he tells us what happened to him in his life. Uh, when he was you know, a teenager, he was captured by Irish marauders and uh, taken from a very secure uh, setting. He, he describes his background. He was, his family was, was well off. They were wealthy. Um, his father was a deacon. His grandfather was a priest. So he's, you know, he's part of an ecclesiastical dynasty, and he's taken out of that Roman imperial British world, and he's brought to uh, pagan Ireland, um, and put minding sheep. 
maybe on, on a mountainside uh, talk about something something totally different um, and you know he, he writes about this with uh, searing honesty in in his letters um, he talks about this as a sort of a divine chastisement or punishment for um, although he's a Christian he's not a very good one and he spills the beans on his background and mm. the reason why he believed he was uh, uh, brought into captivity because of his um, an unnamed sin, he mentions in his letters. Uh, this is this idea that he, he may have done something that was so awful that it's never even written about. Yeah, he mentions that. He says he wasn't quite 16 and he commits a sin. And he says, he, he doesn't say what it is. Um, he says it took him less than an hour to commit it. Um, your guess is as good as mine um, <laughs> as to what that sin might be. Uh, but he, in what he writes, there's an undeniable sensitivity about um, misappropriation or, you know, lining his own pockets that he's in this for mm. himself. So, you know, he, he writes and may, maybe what he writes is the first instance of, you know, it was resting in my account excuse. <laughs> Father Ted reference there mm-hmm. as well, Damien. Thank you for that one. Uh, John O'Donnell's also with us tonight, uh, poet and barrister and regular contributor to A Word in Edgeways. And uh, John, I'm just thinking too, with your other hat on you, the barrister hat for a minute, the, the idea that... Um, Irish law might indeed have also been influenced by our Irishness. How, oh, how different are we like Oh, that? yeah, well, especially our connections with the land and a lot of our laws that relate to land are radically different to the property laws in Britain. So, and I think that's because we've always taken a very different approach to land in Britain. Then there was, of course, St. Cullum Kill, who was one of the originators of the idea that to every cow his calf, i.e. the concept of copyright, uh, and that's something that's developed, but that came initially from Ireland. So, so We've had that influence also, a unique Irish influence in in our laws, and that continues to be the way. Mm. You've uh, put together a little reflection for us, which I thought might be a a nice way to capture the the essence of the day that's been in it. I I hope this works. I I was intrigued to hear Dr. Eben uh, Joseph talking about her being teased about the words she used, but this relates to this. On this St. Patrick's Day, as we prepare to offer a Cade Milofolcher to our 100,000 friends from Ukraine, I am thinking about what it means to be Irish and what it takes for those who wish to stay here to become Irish. In America, people who wish to become naturalised citizens have to undertake quite a rigorous test in civics, politics and history, whereas such a test, if applied in Ireland, might be more nuanced. In order to truly test their Irishness, we might ask applicants questions such as what is the surname of Father Ted? Who put the ball in the England net? Why does flat 7-up have mysterious curative powers? And who or what is the immersion? And the oral part of the test would be fascinating. All those English phrases we use that you don't hear in any other English-speaking country, such as look it, or feck that, (laughs) or ah here, or who's your man? Some phrases mean actually the opposite to what they appear to say. When Irish people say, yeah, right, they actually mean you're wrong. And one of the most intriguing word usages in Ireland is the use of the word grand. In its imported dictionary definition, it means magnificent and imposing in size or splendour. But over here, it means something quite different. If an Irish tourist spot started calling itself the Grand Canyon, for example, we'd say that that place had notions about itself. And even our own lovely Grand Canal is unlikely to be confused with anything from Suez or Panama or Venice. Perhaps it's because in 
general, the Irish people don't celebrate ostentation or extravagance. Rather, we celebrate understatement, irony. In Ireland, grand has a protean quality, morphing and shape-shifting. Like many other words in Ireland, grand means lots of different things, except that it never means what it says in the dictionary. When we talk about the grand stretch in the evenings, we're referring to something that isn't grand at all. The tiny, infinitesimal process, the seconds and minutes by which dark winter nights slowly brighten into spring. And perhaps most importantly, if you ask someone how they are in Ireland, when they tell you that they're grand, they're not saying that they're monumental or resplendent. What we mean, I think, when we say grand, is that things could be better, but they could also be worse. And either way, further discussion is probably no longer appropriate. So provided visitors to Ireland bear this and a few other linguistic ground rules in mind when they come here, they're going to be... Grand. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> lovely talk. That was you lovely. really got my grand. It's <laughs> a wonderful word. Isn't you, it? You're going to put grand on top word. of that. Uh, all I'll say to you, though, is you've now put the fear into me that I've left the immersion on. <laughs> <laughs> And when I get home, there'll be a big bill waiting for me. <laughs> Father Ted's surname is Father Ted Crilly, of course, for of anybody course. who's wondering. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that was, I was I was wondering, I was like, oh my God, thank God I have my citizenship already because I probably failed that test now. <laughs> and Ray Houghton put the ball in the England. Ah, <laughs> oh, lovely. David, are you grand down there? I'm grand, I'm grand. I, I, I appreciate the Father Crilly reference. Um, anytime I have foreign students, I, I, I want to... Um, to have some exposure to Irish culture uh, and uh, contemporary Ireland, I say, go look at Father Ted. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And Father Vassal, I suppose, too, when we, where we hear the, the language must have been, of course, one of the fascinations for people and will be a challenge for anybody coming to the country. It will be. It, it, it definitely will be because we will have uh, people from Ukraine arriving who do not speak English. Some have some level of English. But I, I think after all, I mean, the universal language of humanity is the language of love. As long as people who arrive here in Ireland, and I'm sure that they will be loved and cared for, and that's the only language that they need to understand, is, is the language of love, from to be embraced and to be loved. And that's Ireland for me. Mm. I never felt a stranger in, 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 in this land. So. For, from us watching the events as they've been unfolding, uh, again, it's, it's impossible to, to not see the resilience in the people and the actual um, stubbornness in many cases to survive. Oh yeah, no, you, you, Ukraine, you, throughout our history of Ukraine, uh, you know, the history of Ukraine is a story of people who always wanted to be free. And they are so, always so determined to be free. And that cannot be taken from, from a Ukrainian uh, soul, you know. So people will fight till the last drop to protect their land and their families. Mm-hmm. And we, we can see that in the, events, in, in, in the events in Ukraine, how resilient and people uh, fight for their land because they love it. That's think their family, that's, their, that's where their houses are, that's where everything for them is, and that's in Ukraine. I think that intense pride in their homeland is one of the things that has particularly yeah. stuck, struck a chord with the Irish people because yeah. it's not so long ago since we were fighting against an occupying alien yeah. power and I think that exactly that, that intensity that you've described, that pride in their country is, mm. is what yeah. has resonated particularly with people in Ireland. And, and see, I, 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 I can see so clearly how much uh, Irish people understand us Ukrainians. They understand our pain and our suffering. And we are very grateful for it. 
I think at this point we might just pause and allow some music to talk for us. And uh, on our Christmas programme, we were very lucky to be joined in the studio by Angela and Roisin the Lion. And Angela, I believe you're with me again in the remote music studio we have for this evening. How I are you? Indeed, Michael. Lovely to be here. Loyal, Padraig. And indeed, and to mm. you and yours. Angela, we had the pleasure of you and your daughter joining us on our Christmas Day programme. And we've asked you to rejoin us this evening to celebrate some of the music, particularly associated with the day. And, and I suppose when you think of the conversation we've had so far, there's one particular piece of music related to St. Patrick that has a relevance. There is indeed, Michael. Christ Be Beside Me is actually a prayer that is attributed to St. Patrick, um, known as St. Patrick's Breastplate. Uh, and the history of it, a brief history of it, is that um, a lorica uh, was a form of armour worn by a Roman soldier. And early evangelists wrote protection prayers so they would be safe from attack. And uh, they called them loricas. And when St. Patrick came to Ireland, as we've just discussed, um, I suppose the reality of it was um, it, it was not a safe place for him to be. There were routine human sacrifices to various gods. I mean, we have the bog bodies in the National Museum to remind us of that. It was a cruel society and he brought this radical message of Christianity, you know, that we must respect the dignity of the individual. And in doing that, he did, you know, there were attacks on him and he wrote this lorica where he was basically placing his protection uh, in Christ and Christ was to be the person who was to be on all around him, on every side of him and who would protect him in his journey. So let's hear that now. Angela and Roisini Lyon and Scott Newman on piano and St. Patrick's Breastplate.
Angela and Roshini Lyon and Scott Newman on piano and St. Patrick's Breastplate. Such a fitting piece of music for the conversation we're having this evening. Uh, Angela, when you hear that, and uh, congratulations on, on a lovely performance, uh, an extra emotion to it tonight. Absolutely, Michael. This idea of needing protection, this idea of strife. Um, very interestingly, I saw a wonderful picture, a uh, photograph in the paper of an older woman. She was holding an icon of the crucifix in Kiev Square and she was she was holding it up and praying to it. Uh, Christ would be her protection in the strife, as, as St. Patrick's breastplate prayer clearly reflects and shows. And um, I think at this time we all pray and we all feel visceral pain for what the Ukrainian people are going through. And, and we, will, we need to, I suppose, pray dearly for them and help them in every practical way we can as well. Father Vassal, uh, the idea that people would be protected by prayer at the moment, um, what else can we give you? Well, you can give, you can give us lots of prayers because what, what prayer does in our life, uh, I think that prayer always unites us. Uh, prayer unites us to God, uh, to one another, and to the people of Ukraine. So when there are a lot of people who are suffering in Ukraine who are in a great need of our prayers. So we need to pray for them and send, and be, be un- through prayer to be united with their, in, in their suffering. You know, so it, it's a very important and I think an, an essential part of, of helping Ukraine. Of course, there are so many other ways to, to help to, through the donations, collections, but a very important part is to pray for those people so that through our prayer, through our unity in prayer with the suffering people of Ukraine, we can help them to, uh, to cope with the suffering and the pain uh, and, and the grief and, and anxiety that people go through at the moment in Ukraine. Uh, and Eben, if I turn to you for a moment, we, we hear the, the prospect of 100,000 people coming into this country. Many will want to return to their own countries as well. Uh, you also have a different insight, though, about how we might treat people differently from, from whence they come. Yeah, I think it's really important that we make sure that, because I think the important thing is that people's experiences changes them. So when they are coming in, you know, in my research, my work, I look at the migration journey, that when people migrate, they come in with expectations. So these are going to be coming with the expectation for protection, for equality, for safety, and all of that. So if the quality of experience that they have when they come here, if it is negative, what is going to happen is that it's going to alter their identities Yes, so that people don't, you know, that when you experience, experiences doesn't leave you the same. It changes you. And so if the experience is overly negative, it's going to alter their identities. So we need to be very careful how we treat people when they come in, you know, and to remember that people are coming in with hope, with expectation. You know, we talk about hope deferred, you know, when hopes are not met and all of that, how it impacts on them because people then begin to negotiate those experiences, begin to find, draw from themselves different ways to negotiate the experiences. And in negotiating those experiences, they begin to change. And so if it's overly negative, their changes become more negative negative they can become you know demotivated they can become depressed and all of those things so we need to be aware where people are coming from we've made we've made many of those mistakes in our island here where we've kept people for five six seven eight ten years i'm not just talking of the last 20 years of asylum i'm talking if you look at the limerick program as far back as 1906 you know we go back 07 we go back there we go back to 1954 you know Ref, different refugee groups that have come here with we, who we legally took in in Ireland, 
you know. So it's really important that we make sure that the quality of experience, you know, and, and in a lot of my work, I always ask them, we cannot guarantee equality of outcome, but how can we guarantee equality of experience? That anybody who comes through our shores have the same quality of experience. If we say this island is a country of one million welcomes or a thousand welcomes, that's what we want to make sure. Whether you are black, green, blue, yellow, popular, white, male, female, tall, short, that we can give you the same equality of experience, we would be doing fantastic. And is there a challenge in, in terms of trying to be generous towards the people who are coming in now versus how maybe people would have been brought in years ago into direct provision, for example. Yeah, yeah, and I think and I think that's where we create what what we called I called it oppression gymnastics, because what is happening is that sometimes I want to go online and post, you know, and talk about you know the Ukrainians, but I'm like, you know what? This is such. Um, there's so much. I won't use the word because you are on air, you know, mm. you know, <laughs> you know, going we know on what here, you, mean. Yeah. you know, because it's so selective. Because these are other people have been displaced from their homes as well by wars and all of those things. We've incarcerated them. We've not thrown out the carpet. We've not welcomed them. We've not expected, you know. So mm. we, we again we are repainting the image that there's, you know, a difference in in human beings. Father Vassal, have we only just noticed? I mean, other than the invasion, but I mean, what has been happening in Ukraine has been almost for the last eight years. Have we? Have we been blind to it here? Uh, maybe to some extent, but but I I think when people, when when Ukrainians arrive here in Ireland, they will be there will be a lot of compassion showed towards them, because what what compassion means, literally, is to be struck at the core of your being, and I think I think because we in Ireland, we've been seeing those horrible pictures on mm. TV in in newspapers. I think people in Ireland are struck at the core of their being, and that makes them very compassionate. Father Vassal, so I think when when they, yeah, yeah, I was going to ask you a question. Like you're obviously in touch with a lot of people from Ukraine. What advice are you giving people who are travelling from Ukraine about Ireland? What are you What are you telling them about Ireland? Well, what, what I can tell, I can tell what I have experienced yeah. here in Ireland, and I've experienced only. Uh, of course, there are different kind of, kinds of people living everywhere, but in general, overwhelmingly, uh, Irish people are very embracing, accepting, and loving and caring. And I just tell people that if they come to Ireland, uh, that's what they will experience. Mm. So I, I, always, I always talk to them from my personal experience mm-hmm. uh, in Ireland for the uh, past uh, 10 years. Jamie Bracken, can I bring you in as well? Mm-hmm. Because uh, we had uh, on RT Radio the voice of Tommy Reichenthal reflecting back on the Holocaust and uh, reminding us that we can't be, be blind to the process. With your historian hat on, on you, how will history judge us in the future? It depends on how we respond. Uh, you know, what Father Fassel was saying about um, the importance of compassion, um, th- that, that would be the measure that, that, w- that would be applied to us and our, and our response to what, what's going to unfold gradually. Um, I would also say that, uh, you, you know, I, I know that the, the suffering of the people of Ukraine is just immense, um, but there are other people suffering as well, people in Russia, who do yeah. not agree with this regime, and I'm speaking from personal experience and personal friends. I won't too, say too much about them, but, but they are, they are um, 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 suffering in compassion with the people in, 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 in Ukraine. Um, you know, they, they, they see what's happening, what, what's being done in their name. They profoundly uh, disagree with it. Um, they, they don't want to live in that country. It, 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 things are so bad for them. There's also a, a, a sort of a, a, a migration 
out of Russia and in, in, into Finland as well as uh, f- from Ukraine. We should be mindful of that as well. John, this is a kind of a, an opportunity as well for us to be to mature a little bit as a country. Isn't it? Y- yeah, it is. And I think it's particularly appropriate that we're looking at this on St. Patrick's Day because, as you said at the at uh, the top of the programme, we celebrate... Cel- Patrick's Day is unique almost in that it is celebrating so many other countries which took us in when we were in trouble, mm. um, particularly, obviously, America. Uh, and um, I'm, I'm conscious that, you know, we are now being asked to do our turn, to take our turn of taking people in and, and looking after them. Um, and I think it's particularly appropriate that we kind of reflect on that on St. Patrick's Day. I, I should just... Um, on a lighter note, I'm thinking of the diaspora, all the Irish people who are living abroad and who will be celebrating uh, St. Patrick's Day in, in lots of different countries. My friend, the poet Ian Duick, has a line about an Irish boomerang. And he says, when you throw the Irish boomerang, it doesn't come back, but it sings about coming back. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I suppose. So I'm sure they'll be, some of the, they'll be singing about coming back to Ireland uh, yeah, all over the world tonight. Almost perfectly queuing me up to uh, introduce some more music on the programme this evening now. And the Guth Choir has recorded a Ukrainian hymn for us this evening. We can talk now with three people behind the music. Werner Blau is with us, uh, David Denby and also Ger Hines. Good evening and welcome to the programme, folks. Good evening. Hello. Hello. Good evening. Werner, can I turn to you first? Uh, are you getting the credit as the originator of this idea you have? Yeah, this is actually a uh, very ecumenical story because I'm also the organist and director of music at the Lutheran Church here in Dublin. And as such, I'm a, a member of various international organist associations. And when this uh, invasion of o- Ukraine happened, very shortly thereafter, uh, all the organists were thinking, what can we do? And as part of that very, very lively international discussion, uh, various pieces of music came up. Amongst them, uh, this prayer for Ukraine. Uh, that prayer was written uh, in 1885 uh, by... Uh, the text by Alexander Konitsky and the music by Mikola Lysenko. And that was obviously a time when uh, within the whole Western, I would say, uh, musical and arts community, people found their roots, national roots again. And uh, Lysenko actually inspired the Ukrainian National School of Composition and composed this uh, uh prayer really and some of the words struck immediately my interest it says protect our uh, beloved ukraine bless her with freedom and light doesn't need any further explanation but it gained actually national significance when it was performed by mass choirs today one would call these uh, maybe even demonstrations, <laughs> uh, during the Ukrainian War of Independence in 1917 to 1920. And since then, it's essentially become the spiritual anthem of the Ukraine. So I uh, 
contacted our director of music, John Dexter, and I contacted the choir uh, committee and said, should we devote some time to learn this? And uh, immediately came back, yes, please, and we have to record it. <laughs> I'm imagining straight away that that brings up a, a bit of a challenge uh, as to how many people in the Goethe Choir speak Ukrainian. David Denby, lecturer in languages in uh, Dublin City University. You are given a particular job to do. Yes, I was given the job of trying to do a very high-speed coaching job with the choir. I got a, a text from, or a, an email from Werner on the Monday evening around 11 o'clock saying we're going to do this tomorrow night. Um, I did French and Russian at university. My Russian is not very good, but as your listeners probably know, Ukrainian is some kind of a cousin to Russian. Uh, it uses the Cyrillic alphabet so I was given the job of trying to coach the choir. I went straight to the internet because what I saw and what the choir were given, of course, is um, uh, what we call a transliteration, a kind of phonetic version of the Ukrainian using the Roman alphabet or the Latin alphabet. I went onto the internet and found the original Ukrainian text. Um, and then I came to choir on seven, at 7.30 on the Tuesday evening with the task of trying to... Um, give the, the the members some sense of what this was about um, because what they're presented with is a musical score with uh, words or indeed syllables in Latin script the opening line would look to them something like bo je ve li ki ye di ni and my job was to try and make them see that these were actually Ukrainian words bo je ve li ki ye di ni Great God, uh, only God, Nashuv Krainu Hrani, protect our Ukraine. So I read through the piece uh, aloud. Um, I offered them a translation of the text. And then what I also tried to do was to isolate a few key words in the text and point to point to the meaning the 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 kind of the, the the emotional charge of those particular words because i believe that when you're singing if you're singing something that you understand the semantics behind it you sing it differently from if you're simply singing a phonetic sound so there were some words obviously bourge god and then towards the end of this wonderful um piece there's um uh, the word happiness is in a particular spot in the music, which in Ukrainian is shastye, or Father Vasily will um, yeah. uh, <laughs> will forgive my mispronunciation. I, I was going to ask you about that. How, how are good. they doing so far? <laughs> that was very good. Well, thank you. But anyway, so the task was I had 10 minutes to, to work on this with the choir. Uh, and then, of course, then having learnt how to make the pronunciation a little better, the major job was then for John Dexter to turn that into music, because that's the that's the big step. And Ger Hines is also a choir member and a former chairperson of the choir. And Ger, can you capture us for us what the actual performance was like in the recording? Because we're going to hear it in a moment. Well, I can tell you that what it felt like when we actually sang it and recorded it was it was it was a pretty spine tingling experience. It was very very emotional, very moving, um, and made. I think made all of us feel that we were um, we were able to do something in just expressing our solidarity with the with the Ukrainians who were suffering so badly at the time. It was the early early days of the war, and it was uh, 
people were feeling helpless. They felt they wanted to express something through music. And this was, you know, it was it was a fairly spine tingling experience to actually sing it and record it and hear it sung back. So let's hear the piece, A Prayer for Ukraine, presented to us this evening by the Guthe Choir from Dublin. The Guthe Choir Dublin and a prayer for Ukraine. And Father Vassal, to, to hear that song, uh, the uh, prayer for Ukraine, I presume you grew up hearing it at some point in your life. Of course I did. And we, we sing that hymn at every every single Ukrainian Mass that we have here in Dublin. So that uh, that spiritual hymn of Ukraine is, is sung everywhere throughout the world in Ukrainian churches. But as a man who grew up in Ukraine and was born in Ukraine, and whose uh, native language is Ukrainian, I, I have to say that you, you, David, and the choir, I am very impressed by your pronunciation of the Ukrainian language. It is really, really, really good. Uh, so thank you very much. And also... Compliments are always uh, <laughs> gratefully received. <laughs> no, it, 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 it is really, really, really good. Thank you, thank you. I mean, your pronunciation is, is, is excellent. You know, when you, um, the, the words of this spiritual hymn talk about uh, uh, God Almighty protect us, give us knowledge, give us uh, freedom, give us truth. And these words are very, very similar to those poetic uh, prayers written by St. Patrick. Because St. Patrick, in his prayers, in, in those poetic prayers, 
he speaks of, uh, of the strength of God to guide us, you know, the power of God to preserve us, wisdom of God to instruct us. So I am amazed how much similarities there are between the, uh, this very spiritual Ukrainian hymn and, and the prayers of St. Patrick. Uh, Eben, of course, you have a, a, another language other than English. I'm going to just say no. <laughs> I'm going to disgrace myself on air and say no. And, you know, that's the funny thing, because I have to remind people that, you know, like, because my mom and dad were from two different parts of Nigeria, so they speak two different languages. So we ended up speaking English in my house. So the only language I can speak fluently and well is English, you know. So, so that's why I don't technically have... <laughs> yeah, but you, you've also beautifully set that up for my next question, which is... <laughs> Our own use of the Irish language. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, it, I think it's going to be really interesting if, if I mean, I think some of the Ukrainians will have will have better English than we will have Irish. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Some of the Ukrainian visitors who come here, um, and and all I, well, I think we are going to start to learn some of these phrases. I, I'm, I'm looking them up. Father Vassal, Dobry Den, is that right? That's uh, hello, <laughs> is it? I'm, I'm, I'm starting at yeah. the top and going down. Dobry Den, Dobry Den, Dobry Den, good. Oh, all right, and, and the we've lots Very to good. learn. Borgia I know now is God, but what I think a lot of Irish people will be saying tonight and for the weeks and months, hopefully not months, but certainly weeks mm. if not months to come, is Slava Ukraini. The other thing of course is that the visitors that are coming to our country will be staying in family homes, the children will be going to uh, Irish schools, but, but people will want to go home once they've been here in, and had refuge. They'll want to go back to their country. Yeah, a lot of them want to go back. Once the country is rebuilt, once the war is mm. over, a lot of them want to go back because they miss their, uh, their, their family members in Ukraine because not everyone can travel to Ireland. Uh, males from the age of 18 to 60 cannot leave the country. So, so we have a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, women, uh, young, young ladies who came here with their children only, but their husbands are still back in Ukraine. So th that was, and that's a very difficult decision to make, to leave your husbands behind and mm. to, to travel to another country. And, and Even though that country is a very embracing and loving country, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Damien Bracken, can I come back to you for a moment mm -hmm. as well? Because I suppose as we come to the, uh, towards the end of our programme, and, and I also want to try and give us one more piece of music too, if we can. Um, I, I'm curious to know uh, really about this a challenge that we have um, and the extent to which, as you said, we mentioned earlier on, history judging us. Uh, does Ireland have a, a new role in Europe? Do we have a stronger role in the world? What, what should we be looking to? Well, there's always, um, there's always a place for a voice which doesn't align itself uh, with, with any particular group. Um, you know, a, a voice can, that can speak in a detached way and objectively. And I think Ireland um, historically has always punched above its weight because it doesn't align itself with any particular interest group or any, any particular power. Um, and, and that's part, that's been part of Irish identity. That's, that's what, that, that's what Patrick responds to. Um, you know, Patrick has an identity which is Irish, he's an identity which is British, he's an identity which is Roman. It's, it's an identity which isn't tied down to one in particular, one group in particular. It's, it, it transcends those divisions. I remember Mary Robinson, when she was president, she used to talk about the importance of thinking about our identity, not in territorial ways, but in cultural ways. You know, we can identify ourselves as culturally Irish while 
some people might have a British identity at the same time, just like St. Patrick. You know, Pat, Patrick, the first Irish person, the, fir, the, per, the first person to record their Irish identity in, in literature was, was British. So in that sense, that, that ability to, to straddle these divides and not be tied down by one, any, any one particular affiliation to the detriment of others um, gives you the authority of the outsider. And it's something that you mentioned Colin Bannis earlier on. He, he, he plays that card like nobody else. He says, you know, I'm, I'm Irish. Um, I'm from the edge of the world. Um, I'm not aligned with any particular power. I'm, I, am, I am neutral. I am objective. You've got to listen to me. And he says that very forcefully. He speaks, he speaks with conviction to figures um, of power using his Irish identity to get a good hearing. Can I just say that I think that it's really important that, you know, because if we look at, when we look at St. Patrick, you know, you know, we're talking it's St. Patrick's Day. We also look at his, his migrant identity as well. Look at, I mean, till how many years after we're still talking about that, mm -hmm. you know, so that we need to value the difference that has come into our mm -hmm. land, that it's not only just coming to take, that they're actually coming to give. You know, I give a talk and I say that, you know, sometimes we don't know what we have, you know, what we are missing until we have it. You know, so most of them say until it's gone. No, no I change when mm -hmm. I say until we have it. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's what difference is when people from different backgrounds come in. They are not always, always coming to take. They're actually, they have things they're bringing it to make our country. It's the difference between good and better mm -hmm. you know uh, of course we were talking earlier on about the fact that the irish bishops in 1961 brought saint patrick to nigeria and gave him to you as your patron saint absolutely <laughs> you know they did they brought schools there's a there's a, 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 a one of the nuns who was here who started a school in nigeria as well you know and some of the girls who she who she taught they, they actually found her here and went to see oh, her yeah. so that was you know they had a celebration together so that was nice Angela line uh, of course i can say it with a hand on heart you mm. adore the fact that you have irish as your language to sing and to talk I do, I do. It's part of the culture, it's part of what we grew up with. Indeed, it's part of, I suppose, our connection with St. Patrick as well, because Irish is our own language and everyone, I think, has a, a great affection for what's really be belongs to them and is part of them. Um, I have to say, I couldn't imagine uh, not being in a position where we could use our cupola fuckle as mm. often as we could. <laughs> Can we have another piece from you? Uh, from you? Because I, I think in the, in the night that's in it, I don't want to, to lose the opportunity. What Thank you, you so much. We have Docus Lynn, Nave Podrick, as everyone knows a really well-loved traditional and well-known Irish language hymn about St. Patrick uh, written by a, a 19th century Irish poet Tomás O'Flangilla and it tells the story of the gratitude of the Irish people and the enthusiasm for the faith given to them by St. Patrick which actually a faith which is reflected today in our conversation and our prayer for peace for the people of Ukraine. Oh, oh, oh. 
Locusling Nave Podrick, performed there for us by Angela and Roshini Lyon and Scott Newman on piano. And thank you, Angela, for that. That was lovely. Let's go, I suppose, around the table one more time before we finish for you on the St. Patrick's Night. A final word for you, Angela, in terms of the topic we've been talking about and I suppose the day that's in it. I just would like everybody to pray for peace in Ukraine and thank God for the faith we all have gained and been given by St. Patrick and to see its importance today in celebrating our Christianity and in celebrating our empathy for those people. Dr. Damien Bracken? Yeah, I I admire St. Patrick as a figure who... um, tackles prejudices, um, how the Irish were perceived in the ancient world. They were seen to be occupants of the very edges of the known world, far beyond the empire, therefore far beyond civilization, um, and that stopped others from accepting them um, as fully human, even in the ancient world, and certainly as Christian. And Patrick had none of that. He, he came to a part of the world which was which was unknown, um, and he decided that he was going to make um, he was going to bring his faith and his learning with him, and he, he did so uh, with courage. And Dr. Ivan Joseph, final word from you. Um, I think is to just remember that. I mean, the last two years have been really difficult for a lot of people. You know, I know we're talking about Ukraine now, but there are a lot of people who are suffering, and we still don't know the extent of it. For somebody like me, what has kept me is my has been my faith. You know, having something outside of myself to rely on, and I think that this whole concept of Saint Patrick's Day and Saint Patrick, what he brought, was something to believe in, something outside of ourselves, something bigger than us, and it brings hope. And I think that that's it. And I hope that that's the message that people are getting mm-hmm. as they celebrate today is the hope. John O'Donnell. Yeah, I, I just hope that on this on this night, on St. Patrick's Night, when we celebrate being Irish all over the world, that we will be able to welcome people the way we were welcomed in other countries. Um, and I hope that we'll remember that, the welcome we got and the welcome that we should now give. And of course, our thanks to our the Gutha Choir and to Roisin and to Angela and Scott for the music as well. Final word this evening with Father Vassal Kornitsky. Father Vassal, what's your final thought for us tonight? Uh, on this St. Patrick's Day, uh, I'd like to thank uh, the people of Ireland for your prayers, for your love and for your support. So please continue to pray for Ukraine. And God have And so a special thank you to all our guests. And on behalf of us all here, a very happy St. Patrick's Day to you and yours. Good night. The Leap of Faith on this St. Patrick's Day was presented by Michael Common. Sound supervision was by Mark McGrath, Pather Carney and Tommy O'Sullivan. The broadcast coordinator was Jarleth Holland. The researcher was Sinead Kennedy. And the producer was Sheila O'Callaghan.